From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. What we're talking about today is not a cure for Parkinson's disease or other movement disorders, but a treatment that may be able to help with some of the side effects. It's called deep brain stimulation, and it relies on a device similar to a cardiac pacemaker. Here to explain this procedure is Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery, Dr. Dumani Reddy. At Upstate, he's the Director of Functional and Adult Epilepsy Surgery. Welcome, Dr. Reddy. Thank you for having me, Amber. Well, I'll start by asking you to explain what deep brain stimulation is. Sure, I'd love to. So deep brain stimulation is a technique we develop for treatment of medically refractory movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease or dystonia or central tremor. It's developed in the late 90s, early 2000s by a doctor named Ben Abbey out of France. And basically what it does is we've realized that these conditions develop secondary to abnormal circuits that develop in the brain. Uh, and this treatment somewhat resets those circuits. Uh, and it's used been used so far for patients who are medically refractory, meaning that they've tried medications and the medications are no longer working, or their medications are have to be delivered at such a dosage that it's causing side effects they can't tolerate. The most notable side effects that people seem to have are dyskinesias. Uh, if you think of Michael J. Fox, if you see him, he tends to have these abnormal movements. And those are the dyskinesias, not from the disease itself, not from Parkinson's, but from the medications he takes. Oh. So these this treatment can not only reduce the the incidence of those dyskinesias, but it can allow you to reduce your medication so you don't get the dyskinesias to begin with. So how does it do that? Right. So that's a big question. So we don't know for sure. Uh, Before we did this procedure, we used to do a procedure similar to this where we found the same centers in the brain that now we put a deep brain stimulator in. And we used to ablate them, meaning we would burn them with the radiofrequency probe. And that we, we had done that for about 20 years before we developed deep brain stimulation. Now, the problem with that was that it was permanent. If there was a side effect from it, it was a permanent side effect. Uh, and you know, even though uh, it was you know, relatively the same location in the brain that we're stimulating now, at least with stimulation, if we do get a side effect, we can turn it off. Um, so we used to think that deep brain stimulation worked the same way. It was just uh, what we called a stimulation-induced inhibition, where you would turn on the stimulation and it would effectively just shut down the nucleus you were stimulating. But all the modern research suggests it actually works in a different way. Uh, And basically how it works is by this abnormal circuit that seems to develop in these patients, it just resets it somehow. We're not sure how it does that. The most likely cause is that it kind of alters the balance of the motor cortex and how actively firing the motor cortex is. And in patients with Parkinson's disease or central tremor, the motor cortex is either hyperactive or hypoactive in, in certain areas, not everywhere, but in certain areas of the motor cortex. And this treatment kind of selectively finds those areas and resets them to a normal value. So you have to figure out a precise place in the brain where this is happening, right? That is correct. Most of the surgery is just determining the exact nucleus. So it's a one millimeter nucleus oftentimes in the brain that you need to find. Uh, and if you're off by you know more than two or three millimeters, then it doesn't work. So very precise has exactly. to be very line up. Well, now t- the conditions we've talked Parkinson's, but there's some other conditions too, right? That, that might be appropriate. That's correct. It is uh, FDA approved for Parkinson's disease, uh, essential tremor, uh, dystonia. Uh, it's also a humanitarian device exemption, HDE approved for uh, Tourette syndrome and OCD. What it's not approved for, but what it has been used for. Um, but it's currently not FDA approved for, is Alzheimer's, depression. There's a lot of things now that it's actively being tried for. Obesity for patients who have failed gastric bypass surgery. Um, Anxiety, uh, anorexia, all these things it's been tried for. Uh, You know, 
the literature is, is still not clear on how effective it is. So we don't routinely offer them unless, you know, they've tried everything else. And uh, you know, like I said, since it's not FDA approved, it would have to be uh, a way of finding a, a means of, of, of funding it, which is, you know, tricky sometimes. And it's usually hard unless you're in a study. So funding, it, it is covered by some health insurers for some conditions or? Uh, that's correct. So for example, MS is then a condition that it's not, uh, approved for by the FDA, but if you have an MS tremor uh, and nothing else is working, sometimes you can get approval from your insurance company to, to cover it. Okay. Um, if you have this procedure done, does it mean that you won't have to take medicines anymore? Right. So, so one of the things, for example, with Parkinson's disease, this procedure is only designed to improve your motor symptoms. So with Parkinson's disease, you can have other symptoms, most notably over time you get cognitive symptoms and you get depression symptoms. So with one of the uh, nucleus we use, called the subthalamic nucleus, that we have shown that you can actually come off your medications uh, because the motor symptoms get better. Uh, with the other nucleus we use, called the globus pallus, it is very good at improving the side effects. Uh, so we don't tend to take you off the medications if, you're on, uh, if you get stimulated with the globus pallus, but that's because the medications are helping the other aspects of the, of the disease, like the cognitive aspects and the depression aspects. When you start to simulate the subthalamic nucleus, the symptoms get better, but your dyskinesias don't necessarily improve. So if you have side effects from the medications, those don't necessarily get as better as they do if you stimulated the GPI. So we try to take you off your medications to improve your side effects as well. So all of the things that you said, that relates to areas in the brain. Exactly. All the, okay. I figured it was neurosurgeon ah, speak. I'm sorry. So that's fine. Yeah. Um, now, how would you tell if you or a loved one would be a candidate for deep brains. Not everyone who has Parkinson's needs this, right? That's correct. Uh, and so the basic issue is, uh, you know, and the short answer is that your neurologist will be able to let you know. Uh, sometimes you can ask your neurologist, am I a candidate for deep brain stimulation? And they'll be able to talk to you more about it. But it's ideal for patients who are refractory, meaning either that your medication doses is such that you're taking it uh, and you're still not getting great relief or you're having side effects from your medications and your side effects are almost, you know, to the point where you can't function normally. That being said, you know, we are using it earlier and earlier in the disease. Um, there's been no evidence that it in any way cures the disease. You will always have Parkinson's. This is just to treat the sy symptoms of it. Uh, but we've shown that, you know, because deep brain stimulation is adjustable, meaning you can adjust how much current you give, as the disease progresses, we can control with it better if we can adjust, have these additional tools in our arsenal, including the medications, deep brain stimulation allows you to, to adjust something else. So the stimulator stays in there and you can go back and uh, adjust it. Exactly. However much. Okay. Yeah. Now, are there any age restrictions? So we used to say that, you know, over 70, we didn't do, but that's no longer the case. We will do any age. Uh, if you get to be a certain age, we do what's called a neuropsych evaluation, which is where uh, we make sure that you have enough of a cognitive reserve. So surgery in general is always a cognitive hit. Anytime you get general anesthesia, it always sets you back a bit. And brain surgery in particular can set you back even further. And this surgery very much so can actually, if you don't have enough of a cognitive reserve, can actually make you worse uh, because it, it, it limits your cognitive functioning. Now, if you do have a cognitive reserve, it's not a big deal. You, you bounce back very easily and there's no, no problems. But um, if, you, if you don't, uh, then it can cause more cognitive issues than the benefit you get from the motor symptoms. So if you're over the age of about 
60, we, we send you for neuropsych testing just to make sure you have enough of this reserve. And are there any medical conditions that would make you inappropriate to have this? Sure. So we don't do this medi- uh, surgery on anticoagulation or antiplatelet. Usually if you're on it and you can't get off of it, then it's a contraindication. And there are all there are other alternatives in that situation. Uh, but if you can come off of it for a week, and most of, most patients for those most are, reasons. Those are blood thinners. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, they're both blood thinners. And for patients who have conditions like a prior stroke that they have to be on it or a prior MI, my, uh, a prior heart attack that they have to be on it, or if they have a pulmonary embolus or deep vein thrombus that they have to be on it, usually you can come off of it for a week in those cases, and then we can do the surgery. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Dumani Reddy. He's a neurosurgeon at Upstate who's director of the Functional and Adult Epilepsy Surgery, and we're talking about deep brain stimulation. I wanted to find out what's involved in implanting the electrodes. Is this a, how, how long does the surgery take? It sounds like it would be pretty involved. Uh, so it's about a four-hour surgery, uh, and it depends on whether we do one side of the brain or both sides. If you're having symptoms mostly on one side, that's primarily for our tremor patients. They, they usually have, like a central tremor patients, they usually have it one side of the tremor that's worse, like the right hand is worse than the left hand, or if we're doing both, both sides, like our Parkinson's disease patients. So for a one-sided patient, it, it's about two and a half hours, and for a both-sided patient, it's about four hours. Uh, and the surgery is you come in, and it's an, unique in terms of brain surgery because it's an awake brain surgery for the most part. Uh, we do a scan with the, a frame in place, and we register that to a previous MRI we've taken. We find the location where we need to go. Then we make the incision in the scalp, and we make the hole in the skull, and we put the electrode in, and we drop what's called a microelectrode recording uh, device first, and that just listens to the cells, and that's another confirmation that we're where we want to be. As we talked about before, uh, you know, this is a very small location. It's about one millimeter that we want to target. So we want multiple verification tools. And one of them is the MRI that we do before and the scan that we do with, uh, on the day of surgery. And the second one is this microelectrode recording that we hear and we can tell further by the sound of the cells are in the right location. The third one is why you need to be awake. And that's because we stimulate when we get to the right location. We make sure that your symptoms get better in the OR. And that's our kind of final confirmation that we're on IB. Not only so, that your symptoms get better, but that your side of, you don't have any significant side effects from it. So the patient's awake, so you're talking to them while you're yeah, doing this? That's right. We talk oh. to them. We, we tell them each step as it goes along. And then when we start simulating, we ask them to, to talk to us. To make, we'll make sure that they have, don't have any changes in their voice. The most common and worrisome complication sometimes we can get is that this location can be very close to a portion of the brain that's important in movement. Uh, and then you can get contractions. And with those contractions that happen in your mouth or in your tongue. And so when you talk, it lets us know you're not getting them. Okay. So it's important to be able to communicate as you're doing this. That's true. Person. So that, you know, that being said, we can do this with all three levels of verification, which is how we like to do it. But for patients who can't tolerate the awake surgery, we can, we can do it asleep. It's just the possibility of inaccurate placement slightly higher. So if you're awake, can you feel anything? So you feel us touching your head. Uh, and when we you know, make the, the hole in your skull, you hear it. Uh, it doesn't hurt, but you do feel like somebody pressing on your head. Uh, most of my patients, the worst part, they say, is getting the frame put on in the morning, which is basically the local anesthetic to inject the, the sites. So it's a frame so that your head stays still? Exactly. That does that. And it also it's kind of gives us a coordinate system for where to go in the brain. So when we do the scan, uh, we can translate that scan into numbers, which is what we read out in the OR. And the frame itself has those numbers that lets us know where to go. So you leave these electrodes in the brain? That's correct. Um, do they have wires? 
attached right. to them. Right. So that's the second part of the surgery is the wires come out of the head. Uh, and then for the second part of the surgery is when we put you to sleep and you get general anesthesia. And we, then we take those wires and kind of tunnel them under your skin from your head to your chest. Uh, and in your chest, we put a battery like a pacemaker battery, uh, which is what will actually do the programming. Uh, and that's uh, the part that will be adjusted every time you see your neurologist. So is are the wires just under the skin? They go through the neck? That's correct. So can, it's can, right. Can you feel them like a vessel or something? So it depends. Uh, if if you're if you're a skinny person, you can. Uh, you you hardly ever see them, but if you're a skinny person, you can definitely feel them. Most most of my patients aren't able to feel them. All right, and then you mentioned it's like a pacemaker, just a small. Um, that's correct. Yep. And that, that battery, depending upon how you use it, there's two versions. There's a rechargeable version and there's a non-rechargeable version. Uh, and depending on your setting, is that usually if it's a non-rechargeable battery, it has to be replaced every four to five years. Uh, but that's a day surgery. You come in, you, I don't put you to sleep for it. I open up the, the pocket, just clean off the area, open up the pocket, take out the battery, put in a new pocket and mm. close it out. And it takes about two hours uh, and you go home after like three if you have this device in, are you still able to do um, MRIs or X-rays? Um? Yes. So there are there are now uh, three companies that are there are more than three, but three major companies that are producing these deep brain simulation devices. The most common one, Medtronic, uh, is MRI compatible. The other ones are quickly becoming MRI compatible. Well, let's talk about um, possible side effects after the surgery. Right. So the most common side effects of any surgery, infection, bleeding. Uh, so infection, the most likely site of infection is, a, is the battery site. If that happens, most of the time it's a superficial infection. You get put on antibiotics for a couple of weeks. It's a really bad infection. We have to take the battery out. Uh, and then we put you on antibiotics for about six weeks, IV antibiotics. And then we put the battery back in. Sometimes you can get infection of the brain leads. Uh, that can cause meningitis, which is a more serious issue. The risk of that is less than 1%. Um, and if that happens, we have to take the entire system out. Mm. There is always a possibility of a hemorrhage uh, in the brain, which can cause stroke-like symptoms. It's, you know, brain surgery is not something to be done lightly. That being said, the risk of that is also less than one percent. Which these are the reasons why you know we make sure you're you know medically refractory. Meaning we tried everything else uh, in terms of treatment for you, and th we think that this is kind of one of the options that can really help you. Are there things that you tell patients to consider when they're deciding whether to? have this or not are there like pluses and minuses they need to kind of think about yeah absolutely For the, the first thing i tell them to consider is how much their disease currently affects them uh, if they're treated with their medications and they're at a point where you know they, they feel like they're managing they're just not entirely happy then that's a patient that might need to you know think about it or wait a bit uh, as opposed to if somebody who's dysfunctionally cannot function anymore or you know particularly with their tremor patients they can't feed themselves anymore they can't use their hands they can't write those are the patients that are you know ideal candidates because this could really improve things absolutely for them. this can really improve quality of life and that's that's the goal with the surgeries once again it's not a cure for any of these diseases it's, it's just to improve your quality of life Wow. Well, thank you for letting us know about this. It's my good pleasure, Amber. It's offered here. Thank you. Uh, my guest has been Upstate Neurosurgeon, Dr. Dumani Reddy. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.